Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners who make this podcast possible, and this month that's Kushcore and Magura. I've been using Kushcore for a good few years now, and yeah, they help protect your rims. But what I really love is what they do to the way the bike rides. The bike's more damped, it rolls faster, and it maintains momentum better over rough terrain. I also feel like I've got more support in the corners. They really do allow you to go bigger, corner harder, and ride faster with total confidence. Believe it or not, Kushcore turns five this month, and right from the start, pro riders were sold on the benefits. Since then, Kushcore have amassed 24 EWS wins and 94 podiums, and in World Cup downhill, they've got 27 wins and 96 podiums, seven world championships, and three World Cup overall champions. Pretty impressive, eh? They now make Kushcore for gravity riders, XC riders, fat bikes, and gravel riders. They sell a mix set for mullet bikes, and they make an awesome tool for fitting them called the B-Dropper. You can also now get the Kushcore valves in six different colorways. You'll find all that and more over at kushcore.com. So if you want to go bigger, corner harder, and ride faster with total confidence, then kushcore.com is the place to head. The team from Bagheera came on the podcast last week to chat about their approach to working with athletes and how we too can take advantage of those customization options. Bagheera realized that one brake doesn't suit everyone, so there's options for performance, ergonomics, and aesthetics with a full range of calipers, rotors, pads, levers, and color options. I've spent a few months now on the MT7 Pro with the Storm HC rotors and performance pads. I've tried three different levers and I've found that the HC wide reach lever, which was designed for Lowe at Bruni, works really well for me. It's a totally different way of braking for me with the bite point much further away from the bar, but I'm finding it really comfortable and it's allowed me to have more accurate control of my braking. We've got an awesome competition where you can win an MT7 Pro customize your brake package so that you too can try all of these options and find your ultimate setup. If you want to enter, then you need to head to at Downtime Podcast on Instagram, find the post from the 24th of January, which is an image of the brake and all the options, and you'll find the instructions on how to enter there. It's super simple and you've got until the end of February to enter. Best of luck. If you want to check out the entire Megura range and read some of their great guides on how to choose your optimum setup, you can find all that over at megura.com. There's a couple of other things that I'd love you to check out too, and the first of those is Downtime EP. It's Mountain Biking's newest biannual print journal and a collaboration with the amazing team at Misspent Summers. If you like great journalism, stunning photography, all in a lovely tactile print-only format, then head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP, where you can either subscribe or purchase a one-off copy of the first edition. Secondly, if you're keen to support what I'm doing, then you can do that by grabbing yourself some Downtime merch over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. There's t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, shorts and joggers. It's all organic, made with the supply chain using renewable energy, printed to order and shipped using no single-use plastics. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode of the show, please make sure you're following us wherever it is you listen. There's going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. If you can't find a button, then head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe, which has links to all the major platforms there to help you. Also, if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where we're at Downtime Podcast, then you'll always be up to date and you'll never miss a thing. All right, this week I'm joined by Coach to the Stars, Chris Kilmurray. You'll hear at the start of this episode that I've got some racing plans for this season and I'm far from ready. So I decided to pick Chris's brains and find out what I need to do. I learned a lot and hopefully you'll also get some really helpful tips to help you get ready for the upcoming season. We spend the second half of the episode chatting about the upcoming downhill season and what state of the art might look like for downhill racing in 2022. 
Just a reminder, neither of us are doctors, so if you're going to be changing up your training or your diet or anything like that, please make sure you discuss it with a medical professional first. All right, without further ado, here's Chris Kilmurray. Chris Kilmurray, welcome back once again to the Downtime Podcast. How's life? Thanks for having me. Life's pretty good, yeah. Can't complain too much. Good stuff, good stuff. So let's uh, let's get into this. And I haven't talked about this in public yet, I don't think, but I'm hoping to get an entry for EWS 100 in the Tweed Valley, which is either a brilliant idea or a stupid idea because I'm far from ready for it. Um, so if I was going to evaluate where I'm at, I think I would struggle to ride the practice day at the moment, let alone get up, be able to ride the whole thing again and like hit stuff at any level of pace and commitment. Uh, so where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when is it? I, I haven't checked actually the, I haven't had a good deep dive into the EWS calendar yet. It's on, it's on the list for next week, especially with the EWS E races, which it's, a few riders I coach are going to do. So yeah, it's first weekend of June. So I've got a decent amount of time, but that time window is getting shorter. Yeah. 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 That's, that's actually pretty tight. I was expecting slightly later because normally the, well, the last time we were in Tweed Valley was, you know, late in the year, last race of the yeah. season. So um, I'd say get to work now because, okay. yeah, because uh, especially with EWS, um, not that volume's king, but with EWS, um, work capacity is very important. And work capacity can sound really general, but it's actually quite specific. So when I, when I say work capacity, uh, the ability to ride all day for your practice days do the stages hike back up deal with all the cognitive load of organization thinking planning nutrition remembering the stages remembering to charge a gopro pedaling easy dealing with the changes and liaison terrain remembering the stages recovering after that and doing it all again so yeah work capacity for ews is super super important so before you'd even um at least in my book i think one of the big principles for ews now especially before you'd even start to worry about work rate, so worry about doing your intervals to a specific wattage or sitting at a particular heart rate for so many minutes or whatever way you're going to measure work rate, I'd focus on developing your work capacity. Okay. To, to, to get, like you just said, to get you around the practice loop and to get you around the race loop. And then the next principle is that stages win races. So if you want the best result possible, you need to focus on your stage pace. Mm-hmm. So work capacity, then your stage pace. And everything else kind of stems or grows from there in terms of your planning, your training. So yeah, get to work now because you got a lot okay. of work to do. <laughs> so let's talk about work capacity. And I, I, I haven't, I'm not coming completely from scratch. Uh, so I have been doing a little bit. So I've got um, Wahoo Kicker set up with Zwift in the garage, which has been mm-hmm. super helpful. And I've been doing some like, I guess, slow, steady, uh, long-ish, 90 minutes, maybe sessions there to start building that work capacity is that am i heading in the right direction there like what 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 are the yeah, keys so to that like side of it you using your your indoor trainer like your wahoo kicker and um, which is a real good machine for the longer duration stuff especially um that would definitely form part of your overall your overall system of developing your work capacity your overall training kind of system uh, but when it comes to mountain biking when it comes to ews i'd be trying to get out on the bike in the real world um, as reg- as regularly as possibly. Now, that might only be once a week if you've got a busy work and family schedule. It could be five times a week if you're semi-professional. Um, so I just, I'd aim to, when it comes to work capacity specifically for enduro, you need to be sitting 
on your enduro bike or at least on a mountain bike in that pedaling posture going uphill uh, dealing with the changes in in terrain the re- reduction in efficiency as your chain gets grimy three hours in uh, the soft and claggy dirt as you're trying to maintain you know a, a moderate cadence without putting too much torque on the crank so you're not fatiguing your legs and you're not yanking on the bars so dealing with all of the the real specifics of your liaison skills and your liaison fitness um, and then getting to the top of the hills and blasting down tracks and stages so i think yeah while the indoor stuff is definitely going to form a part especially this time of the year in the united kingdom when the weather's terrible the indoor stuff's definitely going to form a part of your overall process and really really help you deal with the outdoor stuff i'd still be aiming to get outdoors and do actual mountain biking as as much as you possibly can like i said if that's only once a week then so be it but you know aim aim for more yeah so is the road bike a any kind of substitute for that like it's for me personally it's easier to get out for a quick i say quick a quick long spin on the road bike than it is to drive somewhere get muddy come back have a cleanup operation to do so like yeah absolutely two or three hours on the road bike is easier than two or three hours on the mountain bike if that makes sense yeah totally totally yeah absolutely especially with the cleanup the cleanup side of things and and obviously the the less clean your mountain bike is the more likely it is to break so um you can't you can't just leave it dying in the shed between your four rides a week so absolutely out out in the road bike you get to see the horizon coming towards you you get to deal with the fueling and the nutrition and the elements you get uh the, the desire and the need for natural changes in cadence and torque on the cranks and gear selection. You get the, the desire and the need to stand up and do standing pedaling. Um, and you get the whole thought process and thinking that goes into just even avoiding potholes on the road, dealing with traffic and road surfaces and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So there's probably a, an even closer transfer or a more interesting and relevant transfer from doing your road cycling uh, to your enduro than there would be just from sitting in a house in the turbo trainer, you know? Okay. Uh, so I, maybe stuff. if you create, create a hierarchy of training where if you can get out in the mountain bike and get out in the mountain bike and focus on developing your work capacity quite specifically. So you're trying to just get as, as many hours in, as many vertical meters in, as many stages or tracks in and use them mm-hmm. as your, your gauges of your developing work capacity. So oh, this week I can ride for three hours. I did 1500 meters. And in that 1500 meters, I got five tracks in and I felt pretty good. And that was a big step up from say my first my first foray back into riding outdoors where I got two tracks in and 800 meters in, in an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. Uh, so that's your, your peak of your kind of hierarchy. And then below that, you know, you're trying to develop more, just more time spent on the road bike. And then below that you're, you're doing what you can indoors in the turbo trainer. And I think with, with your Wahoo kicker in at home, uh, because sitting on there for multiple hours on end is a bit dull, even if you have mm-hmm. Swift, it can get quite dull. Um, and you have you're dealing with temperature and stuff. You might be lucky and have the fan that Wahoo have. Um, no, not at this right? point. Okay. No. So, so you're dealing with you're dealing with the temperatures and just the the strange kind of soreness you get from sitting on a bike indoors over multiple hours and that sort of stuff. So with the indoor stuff, when you're working towards um, you know training for your enduros, I'd go for frequency. So you know okay. an hour every morning for three days a week or four days a yep. week versus versus one three hour ride. Go for frequency. And then for your road cycling stuff, work on developing your duration on the bike. Um, you know, the, the amount of kilometers, the vertical meters are just overall duration. And then your mountain bike stuff going outdoors, you're working, trying to get pretty speci- specific work capacity, which is um, the amount of climbing you've done, the amount of tracks you've done, and the overall time you spend outdoors in the elements. Okay. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about measurements. I guess you've started to talk about that. So for work capacity, are those the best things to measure? Is there anything else you'd kind of track? Like I know, I know professional endurance athletes like road cyclists and stuff. If if they start back their their preparation phases in their winter training, if they follow a kind of a plan where you focus on work capacity before you focus on work rate. So if you focus on just you know volume, let's say before you start to worry about wattages and intervals mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, they may use their power meters to measure kilojoules, so the amount of energy expended. Okay, uh, which means that as you get more efficient, as you get as you get metabolically fitter you'll have to spend more hours to get the same kilojoules. Uh, okay. So therefore your work capacity is increasing. Yeah. You know, so uh, that I think for mountain biking is just a slippery slope to nowhere because there's so many variables and trying to quantify the energy expended from just sitting on your bike, standing on your bike, you know, shredding six berms, two gap jumps, all that sort of thing. It's so, so difficult to quantify. So when it comes to preparing for your enduros, give or take, you know that, EWS 100, it's going to be the full EWS demands. It's probably going to be a 2000 meter pedaling day for practice, a 2000 meter pedaling day for racing. You're going to have between five to seven stages and they're all going to Mm -hmm. be at max maximum intensity. And probably two of those stages are going to have some really high intensity pedaling in the middle of the stages, at least. And then a few of the others will be really technically challenging at a minimum. Yeah. So that's your that's your goal for your specific work capacity is that okay I'm, I'm working up to the point here where in my winter training i can spend four hours outside i can easily do two thousand meters of climbing in a ride i know how to eat and manage my body and my bike over that duration and i can do four to six to maybe eight different tracks at a pretty high intensity and then yeah. beyond that then you can get super specific in terms of oh, i'm going to do this loop this week i'm going to do the same loop next week and i'm going to try and remember and visualize the tracks or i'm gonna you know track uh, my rating of perceived exertion so just how hard it felt on the liaison see if that's improving so there's there's loads of subjective and objective measures you can quantify as you work through preparing and building towards doing your best job at the enduro yeah good stuff talk a bit about functional threshold power ftp so i saw recently on your uh instagram that you you weren't a big fan of it i did a an FTP test back in November using the kicker um, yep. with Zwift. And I've used that to kind of set my power zones, I guess, my training mm-hmm. zones. What are your thoughts on that as as a metric in itself? Like, does it have any use, any relevance to mountain biking, or is it just a good thing to start off with to get your training zones in the right place? Well, like I said to you, so training zones is work rate, not work capacity. Yeah. So if I was coaching you now towards racing ews 100 in the tweed valley in june uh, we wouldn't at this point we probably wouldn't even be talking about work rate we wouldn't be talking okay. about zones we'd be talking about you know your strength training your mobility um your 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 work capacity abilities to go out and do progressively longer days on the road bike progressively more frequent sessions on the wahoo kicker and progressively mm-hmm. more challenging sessions in the mountain bike before we get to the point where ah now now we're going to set your your zones and now we're going to develop specific interval protocols to develop metabolic qualities on the pedals that are going to have a big impact on your stages so we'd probably okay. we'd focus on the capacity before we go to the, the rate is what i'm saying yeah, yeah. now there's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with mixing the two right from the beginning and using ftp so functional threshold power or critical power or any other of those performance measures that try to infer some sort of a threshold Mm -hmm. and 
using them to guide you going, okay, well, I can do this many minutes for this type of intervals. I'll do this many minutes above threshold, below my threshold, whatever. That's absolutely fine. Okay. Um, so as long as you use the same measures to do your test, uh, I wouldn't be a big fan of using the Zwift, the Zwift in using the Zwift test to create an FTP score. It infers it from a ramp test, as far as I know. So you do a progressive uh, incremental. Yeah, there's some different options. So I've I've done a 20 minute FTP rather than the ramp test in there. Yeah, which that's is pretty that's, brutal, but it's pretty brutal, but it's definitely better. Um, and I know like the Wahoo Kicker has um, the eight minute tests built in, which I quite like for mountain bikers. You can do like a okay. five minute blast, an eight minutes, 10 minute rest, and another eight minute. Uh-huh. Maybe a li- little bit more relevant to the the capabilities of mountain bikers and something that maybe caught in the brain, the brain side of things is, is a nicer way to, a nicer way to dig deep and die. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's absolutely no, there's no reason. And you'll see if, if you, as especially as a recreational rider who has race goals, if you see a clear improvement progressively in your FTP or any sort of a, a measurement of, of steady state power like that, um, you will more than likely see a knock on positive effect in your mountain bike performance up to a certain okay. point. Yeah. You know? I, the thing I have noticed, so I repeated the FTP at the beginning of this year. And whilst the figure itself hadn't gone up very much, the heart rate at which I was running for that 20 minute period was higher, which initially made me concerned but i think from a bit of digging that's a good thing maybe something to do with mitochondrial density i don't know hard to know it's really really hard to know just off two data points like two separate tests and and that's potentially some of my pet peeves with with the likes of fdp is that people only test it pretty infrequently and Mm -hmm. it's it's not particularly like when you use if you're going to go okay well i'll do these intervals at 115 percent of my fdp and then i'll recover at 70 percent of my fdp and you've done a test six weeks ago, like, yeah, you have a metric to work off, but how valid is that metric when the test is six weeks old, you know? Yeah. You know, and you could have trained perfectly, amazingly well for six weeks, or you could have got sick twice in those six weeks. So it's, yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of caveats to go with using. I think the bottom line for me is that using that as your sole metric to base training off is, is a dangerous thing to do, especially because okay. principle number one of enduro is that stages win races. And stages mm-hmm. do not have a lot of seated pedaling, which is what you're measuring yeah, in your FTP test. You know, yeah. So, um, but what what is super important to remember is that when um, Lewis Kirkwood, who's a, a researcher out of Edinburgh Napier University, um, he did his a lot of his his PhD work uh, on enduro mountain biking and the immune response. But he he did a lot of uh, work with professional racers, a few of whom I, I coached at the time. Um, and what he found one of the big correlations for overall enduro performance um, was the ability of the athlete to produce l- a high amount of power at four millimoles of lactate okay. which would be an, an intensity kind of just below probably ftp maybe uh-huh. quite below ftp for for a very well-trained athlete so that would correlate to you being able to just cruise up the liaisons like you know yeah. get, getting up the hill um really chilled with plenty of time to prepare and relax before you drop into your stages or warm back up again so as a as a goal, then that comes back to our work capacity, and that's that's how you develop that ability. So to develop your ability to to you know cruise up the liaisons, I probably wouldn't focus on work rate. I wouldn't focus on percentages of your FTP. I'd focus on getting a lot of bike time, like a lot yeah. of bike time, as much as you okay. physically can as a as a recreational rider. Yeah, fair comment. And when you do get well, maybe we should move on then to the kind of getting ready for the stages part of the training mm. the, the real deal the fun stuff the real deal Where, how would you go about 
setting uh, interval intensity then? If, if, if FDP is a measure that we question, are you looking at rate of perceived exertion or like how would you program like go this hard? Um, as in trying to develop um, like your metabolic kind of qualities, your, your ability to smash it on stages and recover between smashing it. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Like as we as we build towards the event, we're starting to put in. We've built the base, I guess, that ability yeah. to get around the day. But now we need to build the ability to attack a stage, like which I'm assuming involves intervals. And so intervals are going to be like go hard, do this hard for thirty seconds, do this for yeah. twenty seconds, whatever. I guess, yeah. How do we how do we create the level for those intervals? Well, the, the first thing I do is that I I do a lot of specific training, so actually smashing stages, tracks on yeah. your bike, which is which is something that a lot of mountain bikers just don't do. They just yeah. kind of they, they get not obsessed, but they'll definitely focus in on their 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 quantifiable metrics that everyone else focuses on, which is just borrowed mm-hmm. from road cycling, which is FTP. Focus on that, and then kind of go, oh yeah, I have to actually swing off these routes while I'm cross out. <laughs> so yeah. the idea is that actually what you want to do is you want to use your interval training so you're not cross-eyed when you're plowing over the roots that's exactly mm-hmm. what you're kind of asking is that what you know what sort of intervals should i do to make sure that when i do want to execute technically i'm not absolutely cross-eyed with my elbows in my hips just absolutely dying you know so um duration would be one of the big ones i'd, I'd focus on so you're going to go your minimum your minimum stage duration is is three minutes your maximum stage duration is probably eight to twelve minutes mm-hmm. And we'd look at working specific intervals to develop metabolic or physiological qualities that we need. So in this case, that's the ability to get around the whole day. That's the ability to do maximum intensity efforts and recover relatively quickly from it, both in the stage and after the stage. And then you have your specific intervals to deal with the demands of the stage. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. So for your, your first type of intervals, the ones that develop just overall physiological qualities that are useful for enduro... Um, we'd start with doing intervals just to learn how to do intervals. Okay. Simple as that. So normally based off rating of perceived exertion. So just go eight out of 10 for 20 seconds, recover for 40 seconds at three out of 10, repeat mm-hmm. them and add, add, add repetitions to your sets and then increase your sets and mix yeah. them into your rides, do them on your road bike, do them on your Wahoo kicker, do them on your mountain bike. If you wish, we can blend them in. So that's just to learn how to manage your intensity, learn how to do your intervals and then we'd, we'd go from probably a short to long focus. So we do shorter intervals. So your classic 30 thirties uh, or 45 thirties or any, any sort of shorter duration intervals where you're really going to have to dig deep, work exceptionally hard to develop, um, you know, the upper ends of aerobic metabolism. So what people would call VO2 max intervals, you know, yeah. or maximum aerobic power intervals, whatever you want to call them. So you do shorter duration work to rest ratios, develop that. And then slowly start to work towards some longer ones. So a minute on, a minute off, three minutes on, six minutes off, that sort of thing. And and that's when you st- that's when you'd start using um, your FTP measures. So if you, when, okay. once you start once when when you're in the shorter domain, you could definitely use your percentages of FTP if you wish, or you can go off rating of perceived exertion and just see things get easier while your wattages increase. If you're lucky enough to have something to measure. Yeah. Uh, your wattages and then as we go longer we'd probably want to be a little bit more specific because it's it's just it can be more challenging to maintain the appropriate intensity once you get to three four five six minute long intervals so that's when wattages become just just an easier way to get quality work done so yeah. then you could use 105 or 115 or 125 or 145 percent of your ftp for 
two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, recover at whatever wattage or recover at whatever uh, time durations you want. And that that's how we'd work through developing the physiological qualities that are useful for endurer with intervals. So you'd start by learning how to do intervals. You'd go short, then you'd go to long, and then you'd probably go back to short again as you get closer to racing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have intervals that are very characteristic and very relevant to the actual sport. So this is where you could do 20 seconds maximum at the start, like the start of a stage, then yeah. sit sit at a, a, a relatively moderate wattage for a minute and then do a series of shorter sprints and then sit at a rel- relatively moderate wattage for a minute or two, then do another series of shorter sprints, on-off type stuff, and then another kick at the end. And that would give you, say, six minutes where you're focusing, like you will in a stage, hard start, ups and, ups and downs in the middles, hard finish. So you have kind of both ends of the spectrum, the physiological end of the spectrum, and then the actual sport characteristic end of the spectrum. And that's that's how I'd go about planning your planning your training. Got yeah. Okay. So what one of the biggest challenges that I kind of see is that I need to be able to ride, let's say, five, six minute tracks for Swede Valley yeah. with a following wind. Um, and I need to drive at least two hours to get to anything longer than two minutes, mm. um, which massively impacts my ability to go ride stages of that length. Like yeah. I might be able to do it once or twice, but I'm not going to be able to do it every week. Any, any kind of clever tips on helping your body get ready for riding five minute tracks when all you've got is two minutes. Yeah. So off the bike training for sure. So yeah. um, if you have some sort of a foundation of, of strength and, and conditioning and mobility training, and you've been developing your, your strength kind of qualities through real basic foundational exercises like lunges, squats, deadlifts, rows, pull-ups, push-ups, that sort of thing. Um, then you can probably start to think about, you know, doing a little bit more um, conditioning focus work in the gym. So using mm-hmm. a rowing machine or a ski erg or a bike and incorporating, you know, body weight and loaded exercises into a circuit type system where you go, okay, look, my stages are six minutes, they're eight minutes long. So I'm, I'm going to do my strength workout. And then at the end, I'm going to do two times, two stages, basically stage one and stage two. And yeah. I'm going to use the rowing machine. I'm going to use the barbell. I'm going to use these two dumbbells. And I'm going to do some movements that really um, let me use my strengths so I can really dig deep into my, into my, you know, my strength and my, my power capabilities and my, the upper ends of my capacity and also choose some exercises that help me develop on some weaknesses. So maybe your low back is a weakness. Maybe your leg strength is a weakness. Maybe your upper body strength is a weakness, which is definitely a case for a lot of mountain bikers. So I developed, you know, uh, some sort of a, a strength circuit or a conditioning circuit that really targets your, allows you to use your strengths to absolutely kill yourself basically mm-hmm. and also targets your weaknesses. So you know that when it comes to racing six minutes at EWS, at least you've you've had to dig deep, focus hard and continue to work very hard for six minutes. So that's one end of the spectrum, the off the bike stuff. And then when you're on the bike stuff, um, I definitely, if, if family and life allows you, um, plan some trips where you can actually go to a place where you've got big hills to do big stages. Yep. And even if you only get one or two trips before the Tweed Valley EWS, then that's better than no trips. Yep. So go away and, and do a real specific, almost a race replication. Do two or three days, maybe with friends, maybe not with friends, whatever you can organize and just smash as many laps as you can. You know, get real specific and replicate EWS demands or just go crazy and just do what you can, you know. Yeah. Um, uplift days are another, another good option. Definitely just yep. go and uplift, even if it's just downhill tracks. If you don't have much time, just book a weekend, just do a Saturday or a Sunday 
and just focus, you know, say to yourself, okay, at EWS, I'm going to be pedaling all day. I'm going to do 2,000 meters descending. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go to the uplift day with the boys or the girls, and I'm going to do 6,000 meters descending if I can. I'm going to triple yeah. the descending demands. So that's another way to attack it. And then the final one would be your home trails. So if you've got trails at home, they're, say, 45 seconds or a minute long, um, I do go out and focus on doing a hard sprint, you know, maximum effort sprint for 15 to 20 seconds before you drop into the trails. Okay. And drop in, ride the trails as hard as you can, get back to the top as quick as you can, and repeat as many times as you're able for. So really push the limits of intensity because you don't have the duration at home. Got you. Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. My super local tracks are about 20 seconds. So I'm going to be busy. Yeah. Well, um, what's your, what's your roads like? What's the, the fire road or the, the, the the liaison up to it? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely a position that you could sprint. Like it's safe and it's fairly hard pat. Like you could get some good laps in. Well then in your case, because the tracks are so short, I'd probably aim for like uh, a minute or two minute effort at the start. Yeah. Where you you sit in and you grind out like above your FTP, quite yeah, above yeah. your FTP for two minutes uh, and then drop into the stage as quick, uh, the, the track uh, as quick as you can. Okay. So in the beginning you go out, say this weekend, you try that session, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to do three times, three minutes and mm-hmm. then drop into the track as quick as I can. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to leave a minute between my three minutes and my actual riding. So you actually recover enough to be able to ride your bike. And then you just progressively reduce that minute down to 15 seconds or 10 seconds or to zero. And that's going to give you some of the, it's going to develop a lot of physical qualities that are really useful for enduro. And it's also going to give you an insight into some of the characteristic demands of enduro where you're riding kind of hooped. <laughs> yeah, and you, you, wish you, you wish you were riding really well, but you're not because you're absolutely hanging, which is, which is, a, which is a lot of EWS, you know, so there's just so many options to get creative. And I think not to hark on about the FTP thing, but that's again, for me, that's, it's one of the, it's, it's a bit of a pet peeve with it because people, people focus in on it because it's easily quantifiable yeah. and it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere you look. So if you have a training peaks account, you're getting emails from training peaks every week telling you how to use FTP. And actually there's so much more creative, interesting and, and impactful ways for the recreational rider or racer to, to have you know really successful interesting training beyond just work rate yeah but that Good doesn't sense. mean there's not a place for work rate because sometimes just sitting on the turbo i said it to an athlete i coach, I coach recently that you know next phase of training coming up for him we're just going to do some mindless intervals because sometimes just doing some mindless intervals where you, where you just absolutely kill yourself is is what you need you know there's, no, there's yeah. nothing wrong with good, honest, hard work, but also there's there's a lot wrong with getting to an EWS having not ridden your bike, you know, under really, really hard physical conditions where you're really feeling it and your technical execution is starting to suffer. So getting to the EWS yeah. having not experienced how fatigue is affecting your technical, technical execution is a big no-no. And I guess there's a psychological element as well about being comfortable with your, you know, not riding as fast as you you know you can because you're breathing out of your ass, basically. Like. Yeah, absolutely, totally. And and this this that's exactly where you can use what Strava at worst, because mm-hmm. you know accuracy is pretty poor. Um, or you know, free lap timing or whatever timing system you can get your hands on if you want to get kind of serious about. It. And that's when you can start to dig into like improvements in your actual stage pace. Yeah. So you know, hoop yourself with a. 
a hard effort before dropping into the trail and then focus on how you're executing, you know, whether you're riding a bit more round, a bit more straight, whether you're being super aggressive, whether you're actually going genuinely slower, what feels like perceptually slower, whether that actually results in a faster time, you know, that, that sort of stuff is super, super interesting. Sadly, time-wise, if you're, if you've got a full-time job and a family, whatever else, it's, it's hard to get the time to, to really build those kinds of sessions, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm going to struggle with that. One other thing that I, I guess is a bit of a worry in the back of my mind is arm pump, given the length mm. of the stages and the the lack of time to ride stages that long. I've recently, I've been using the Magura brakes and I've been f- favoring the, I think it's called the HC wide lever, the one they designed with Loic, which kind of meets, it reaches parallel way further out. So it felt right to set my bite point a lot further out, which means mm-hmm. I'm, breaking with the end of my finger instead of kind of pulling much further mm-hmm. back, which I'd normally do, which Fabian Burrell said was a good thing mm-hmm. from a sensitivity perspective, which I get. Are there any physical reasons why that would be better or worse from an arm pump perspective? Is there any kind of thinking around that? I, I totally agree with with Fabian and who who anyone else who, I think j- just on a real simple physiological level, if you look at it on, a, on an anatomical level, you know, using less of your forearm flexors to do your braking makes sense. Yeah. You know, so like the the, the, le- the less f- muscle fibers in the forearms you have to recruit to actually do your braking, the better. Mm-hmm. Because okay. the, le- the, le- the less you have to recruit, the less the less strength capacity they use and the less strength capacity that you, the, you use, the more accurate you are. Yeah. And, and the more accurate you are, the, the more likely you are to break well. And the more likely you are to break well, the less likely you are to get fatigued and make mistakes and the less likely you are to hold on. So I think between lever position, bite point, lever shape, if you're lucky enough to have the options um, and grip diameter, maybe handlebar construction, handlebar width, reach. So you, you start to go back pretty <laughs> quick, actually. But I think yeah, the, you, you can go to the whole bike setup very fast. But yeah, bite point and... Um, lever angle lever position and grip diameter would be yeah. in terms of in terms of optimizing your equipment to deal with the effects of arm pump that'd be the, the places i'd go straight away yeah any guidance on lever angle and grip diameter or is it something you need to go out and try for yourself uh bigger hands fatter grips smaller hands narrower grips yeah as a rule as a rule of thumb pretty obvious mm-hmm. um and after that then grip shape uh, densities all that sort of stuff um there's there's a trade-off with grip density less dense gives you better feel but gives you less damping so somewhere yeah. in between is probably the one there's there's some brands out there like um some of the odi elite grips have a real good balance between damping and control uh, as mm-hmm. does the ergon grip that fmd developed yeah that's the one i'm using uh, and i really yeah. like that as does one of the sam hill signature grips from nuke proof as well um uh-huh was on the thick side in terms of diameter, but is so soft yeah. that it feels narrow. Okay. So I think when you're talking about EWS, definitely if you talk about the Alpine, the European EWS is where you have massive stages. I you, That's when you can really get interesting with slightly thicker grips with a bit more damping mm-hmm. because they, ha- they start to have a better trade-off um, in terms of reduction of vibration fatigue as the stage progresses. But for yeah. shorter stages, like you get in the Tweed Valley, um, I just aim for something that feels super, super comfortable, allows you to grip the bar with a lot of strength, um, doesn't give you any sort of strange kind of 
tingling or weird hand cramp sensations as the stage progresses, as the tracks progress. Yeah. So that's that's kind of why I go. Trial, trial and error is the only way to do it. And sadly, that's in the current inflationary climate, that's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and impossible because no one's got any stock. Yeah, no one's got any stock, Yeah, sadly. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, in my experience, you know, uh, the new proof grips, Ergon grips and um, ODI grips are really, really good. And um, per- personally, for example, I, I don't like a grip that doesn't have some sort of an edge on it. That's just me. Okay. I like an edge that I can rest my hand on, but that's just how I how I break, you know. Yeah, fair comment. What and about I, lever angle? Um, as flat as you can comfortably use. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think. I, I don't think I listened to your podcast with Fabian, but I probably imagine he recommended something similar. <laughs> I can't remember if we talked about it on a podcast you know, or off air. I'm not sure. But. And, and I think I think anyone who's who's gone deep into thinking about you know the benefits of cockpit setup in terms of performance, we'll quickly get to a point where the, the levers are relatively relatively flat to the, the angle of the ground. I'm trying to think yeah. of, because I, I measure mine every year, like with a little uh, clinometer on the telephone. Yeah. And I'm trying to think what we're looking at. I think it was like between 25 and 28 degrees. Okay. Yeah, um, mine are pretty flat at the minute. I don't yeah. think I'd want to go much flatter. So the idea of flat is that it it creates a, a position when you're when you're standing up on the bike relatively mm-hmm. upright as you kind of should be when when the tracks are flat or you're you're you know in a a prime position what some people are kind of call the attack position yeah i call it prime prime posture in between features on the trail um you want to be in a position where the 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 energy the feedback that's coming from the wheel through your forks into your bars is going into the palms of your hands yeah, yeah. So you don't have your elbows roll forward. You don't have, you don't have like the, the handlebar pushing, a, like away from the edge of your hands. It's really at the, the biggest purchase point of the your grip. So yeah. that means that in that position, that the levers, if the levers are slightly flat, you'll be at the most advantageous position for your your hands to do the least work while getting mm-hmm. as much energy, as much force through them as possible. And then as yeah. the trail gets steeper, or you have really quick changes in pitch in the trail or you need to move around the bike a lot, which is which is basically technique, is you moving to execute something on trail. It gives you the most room possible to get all your weight back on the bike, to mm-hmm. do a manual or to deal with steep terrain and still have uh, a relatively good control over your braking and your, your handlebars. Whereas if your levers are pointed quite far down and you need to quickly pitch your weight off the back of the bike, you have to almost roll your feet. You have to roll your hands forward to try and still have good control over the brakes. Yeah. which is just a bit a big no-no so the flatter you can get them while still being comfortable in your upright position leaves you in the most advantageous kind of position anatomically to do a maximum amount of things on the bike depending on how you know no matter how steep it gets got yeah okay yeah i you think know? i'm in a pretty good space on that then so that's yeah. uh that sounds promising so obviously limited amount of time i want to kind of maximize uh, everything I can get out of every session that I do. And I also want to try and avoid getting ill as much as possible. Mm. Um, cause that's just going to cut into the time that I've got. Um, any thoughts on kind of supplementation side of stuff? Like I'm interested in protein, uh, branch chain, amino acids, creatine, um, sell your children. If you don't want to get sick, that's my, yeah. <laughs> that's my advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> Any, anyone who has kids will, will sympathize because they always bring home head colds. Um, yeah. Uh, before we even talk about supplementation, if 
well, health is the foundation of performance, whether it's it's uh, Chris Hall going to race EWS 100 or it's, you know, Craig Callahan or Richie Rude or Jack Moyer going to race EWS for the win. Mm-hmm. Um, health is the foundation of performance. Elite, a- elite athletes always push the boundaries of health because once you optimize for a particular sport or a particular discipline, that's the nature of the game, sadly. Yeah. So you're really, you're, you're kind of fighting the knife edge to stay as healthy as possible as an elite athlete while optimizing yourself for very specific demands. Um, for the recreational racer slash rider, uh, you don't have to get anywhere near as dangerous with health uh, as the professional does, but the foundations of health are still the same, which is sleep and nutrition. Yeah. So before we even talk about supplementation, um, getting as much sleep as possible, having the best, the most stable sleep schedule as possible where you you know, get the minimum amount of light every night before, it's like an hour before bed. Uh, you get a maximum amount of light in the morning and you wake yourself up in, in the same routine every morning and you get this real solid, stable sleep cycle over your 24-hour period that's kind of in sync with uh, the, the circadian rhythms of whatever part of the world you live in. Yeah. Um, and then your nutrition um, is anchored on quality calories, um, protein, energy would be a, a big part of it. So getting... Uh, a maximum amount of of protein from the most energy um kind of i'm trying to think of the, the the best way to describe it but you want to get maximum protein for minimum energy out of your out of your diet okay. and then tailor your carbohydrates to your riding and your life demands yeah. so once you cover all those foundational things then you can start talking about supplementation to make sure you maintain health and, and i think we, so on protein are we talking around like two grams per kilo body mass or yeah that's that's a real good it's actually for a lot of people it's harder to hit than than they imagine yeah um, i'm surprised i started looking into it recently and it was i was quite a bit under that yeah a lot of people are quite under that so that that's when supplementing with, with some sort of a, a protein powder supplement or you know making protein kind of rich snacks Mm-hmm. Uh, or sneaking in an extra piece of meat or some extra dairy products or some extra uh, it's it's harder to sneak in extra plant protein because plant protein comes with a lot of fiber and, and more calories so you need to actually yeah. normally you need to actually eat it if that makes sense yeah you can't just inhale it's, it's way more <laughs> challenging to just inhale plant protein whereas uh, more animal-based sources um, are a lot easier to just inhale uh, like yep. a, a 300 a 300 mil glass of milk just kind of disappears in, in 20 seconds you know mm-hmm. um so yeah like two grams to even 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight is okay. is a real a real good place to work for and for a lot of people they have to build up to that to learn how to do that but in terms of your overall health and your training adaptation even if you've just got recreational you know training goals or just fun race goals like your race goal that's definitely one to one to definitely work towards okay yeah fair enough so yeah i'm working on the protein side and i have ended up going for some whey protein to help get to that figure um which seems a fairly straightforward thing to do and pretty safe and and with that so branch chain amino acids is something i've heard a little bit about and i think they're in certain proteins anyway right yeah, like if, if you use a whey protein, uh, it'll have um, all of the essential amino acids and and branching amino branch chain amino acids in there. Uh, BCAAs for short, branch chain amino acids. Um, there's been a lot of research done on them, and most of the research would be in you know random randomized controlled trials where they compare having and not having branch chain amino acids for a certain strength training protocol and 
you know, which group got the better adaptations, who got bigger, who got stronger, and you'll very seldom see a difference. And I think that's using BCAs not how they should be used. It's not okay. what they're, it's probably not what they're best at. So for the vast majority of people, I'd say BCAs are probably not necessary. You know, okay. if, if you're, if you're aiming to get that two grams per kilogram of body mass, uh, protein target, and you're supplementing like you with whey protein, which is, you know, probably the, the king protein supplement, um, BCAs probably are of no major benefit to you. Um, where they do come into play is, um, cognitive function to so your, your brain, how your brain works. Mm-hmm. and how you potentially recover or adapt to very demanding training. So for people that are going to go and try and ride on the turbo three times a week and then going to try and do two massive rides at the weekend for their preparation for EWS, let's say, and they work a physical or a demanding job or they've got kids or they've got a real busy home or life schedule for whatever other reason or they're juggling two businesses and training or whatever you're doing and you're really pushing the limits of your your mental capabilities as well as your physical capabilities then using branch chain amino acids during training might actually have some some positive impacts down the line as you as you get okay. closer and closer to your event but unless the other foundations like sleep overall diet protein targets protein energy ratios are all taken care of you're probably just wasting money yeah Fair comment. Yeah. And what about creatine? Something that I've always sort of associated as a real like bodybuilder bulk kind of thing, which I'm completely not interested in. Um, but again, there's a lot of research on creatine and the, the positive impact it can have in in kind of adding muscle mass. Any thoughts on that as a supplement for someone who's not an elite racer by a long stretch? Um, the, the, the king of all supplements potentially. <laughs> Okay. But the number one, I, I get so many questions about it. It's like I'm a creatine advocate. I think if any creatine companies <laughs> want to sponsor me, they can they can send me a monthly check for a thousand euro because I, I sell that much <laughs> creatine at this stage. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually, I, I get that many questions about creatine. I do like a, a Friday five on Instagram when I have the time. Mm. So like, you know, top five questions of a Friday morning, I'll put the post up and then I'll, I'll try and answer them that evening. And invariably i get three to five to maybe 10 questions about creatine alone every every time i do that um and i think that's because it's it's always there it's like if, if people follow some fitness accounts or some um some sports science kind of accounts on social media creatine always pops up because like you said it's the most researched but actually no, no matter what no matter what research is carried out creatine is just always seems to have some positives um it's cheap it's safe. It's super easy to take, uh, and it has big positive impacts on muscle mass, muscle strength, and on the other end of the spectrum, spectrum less researched but just as positive is the cognitive side of things. So your your resistance to, to mental fatigue, your ability to to solve problems and deal with focusing and attention, and potential impacts for you know mitigating the the impacts of a head injury. So you're mm-hmm. recovering quicker from any sort of a concussion type thing. So okay. uh, bang for your book, five grams of creatine every morning or every afternoon or with your, your whey protein or with your dinner or whenever you can get it into it seems to just be, if nothing else, a good safety net. And I think when, when I'm you know prescribing supplements for the athletes I work with, we kind of work off a principle of a health safety net before performance. Okay. So we, we, we'll you know, do whey protein, fish oil, 
vitamin D3, K2, uh, mm-hmm. and creatine during the winter months okay. um, as your foundational health supplements to just support your life and training loads. And then yeah. beyond that, then you have to get pretty specific in terms of supplementation needs based off the demands of your sport or your needs as a, as a specific individual. Okay. Yeah, so, fair enough. I've been supplementing fish oil for a good few years now. Like it's, again, it's loads of positive research, no negatives. Yeah. Feels like a no-brainer. Just and negative yeah. on your pocket when you add up how much you've spent on fish oil. But. <laughs> <laughs> True. And then, yeah, vitamin D over the winter, I found helps definitely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think vitamin, vitamin D, like, if you can get it from sunlight, it's where, it's where, it's where it's at. Uh, getting a maximum amount of sunlight, regardless of where you live, even with clouds is key. Getting sunlight in the morning in the first kind of before 10 a.m. seems to be super positive impact on people's health. And if health is the foundation of performance, then it's, it's definitely something to aim for. Um, and just, yeah, generally getting as much sunlight as possible. If you can't get sunlight on your skin and into your eyeballs, um, or even if you do, vitamin D3 seems to just be a really good safety net if you're above however many degrees of latitude. I don't know which, 35 maybe, or 32, I can't remember which, but yeah. If you're yeah, kind of far if, north, just get it into you. It's the, if it's, the if it's dark, time. take it. Yeah, yeah if, if it's still dark at 8am, get it into you, basically. Fair play. Good stuff. That's super helpful, Chris. Thanks for that. There's plenty yeah. for me to go at and... uh yeah, I'll keep you posted on, uh, on how I'm doing. We should probably um, do a, a big show notes with just a list of stuff we've talked about because there's so many so many details we've brushed over people, especially with words that people have only heard once or twice to be like, oh, that's that sounds like jargon, you know? Yeah, true, true. Well, if people are struggling with anything, then drop drop us a message and uh, we can yeah. try and clarify things somewhere for sure. Let's talk a bit about the uh, the fast approaching downhill season. Then it's uh, it's coming around quick. We got a nice early start this year with Lords in uh, late March. Yep. Where are riders at in their in their training right now? What are they kind of wanting to see and feel from a, a progress perspective? Uh, well, before we get there, um, European summertime clock change. So the clocks go mm. forward an hour. The night or the morning of race day in Lourdes. So we lose so, an hour's sleep. <laughs> we lose an hour's sleep uh, between Saturday and Sunday race day, and practice for Group B will be in the dark because of it. So, uh, <laughs> wow, lucky, lucky, lucky Group B. <laughs> group, lucky Group B. I remember being in Lourdes in twenty. It was either fifteen the first year, or sixteen the second year, and walking down the track at about seven forty-five a.m. just before B practice starts at eight fifteen. For on the first day and I remember the little patches of water between the rocks and the furry first rock garden were frozen solid like ice <laughs> and I was just like because oh. you always get this thing you, you, you walk down like from the Stargate walk or ride the first couple of sections at a World Cup as a coach or someone at the race and you're like oh I'd love to ride sometimes you know but then as soon as you're there for group B practice you're like I'm glad I'm not riding this is yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I think I think a lot of people are it looks like a lot of teams anyway just just going off of the uh the carefully curated things that people share on social media mm-hmm. um a lot of people have just picked up the ball from in the last year and just have carried on pretty quickly with uh, what they were doing between the races during last season you know because la- last year was a super late start we started you know mid-june in um in leo game because of covid so i think people are you know a lot of teams a lot of riders are still super motivated um so people have been doing a lot of team camps a lot of riding a lot of testing a lot of training already so it looks like a lot a lot of teams a lot of riders are going to come out all guns blazing for lured 
at the same time, um, I know some of the riders I work with have already said that, yes, I want to be ready for Lourdes, but being intelligent, um, planning the training around being, you know, really, really ready in terms of work capacity, like we talked about for EWS, being really ready to knock off multiple weeks of back-to-back racing, that goal is coming from June onwards, or from the end of May. Yeah, okay. forward in, yeah. Yeah. So work capacity is less of a concern for Lords. Is that fair? Potentially. Yeah. Like being able to, to get through a single race week uh, and execute a very well executed high intensity race run is the, is the focus for Lord. Mm. Then you've got another six weeks to develop your ability to do that for multiple weeks back to back for the rest of the season. So I think depending on where a rider is with their, their level of experience years of training and racing to have under their belt and injuries they've been managing or training new, new training methods they've been trying or whatever it is you know you've got kind of a a, a two-tier or two-focus uh, race series happening you know you've got lowered you want to come out all guns blazing win the race or at least not be far back in the points and then the, the rest of the season starts a little bit later yeah yeah so yeah, you mentioned team camps. There's plenty of that going on, which we can see from the social media side. What yeah. what goes on at a good team camp? What are people actually trying to achieve? I think that that definitely varies. I, I don't have the insight uh, from all the teams, you know, but that definitely varies depending on on the team infrastructure. Uh, there's probably uh, a big mix, a big smorgasbord of unnecessary puzzling, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, testing things that don't need to be tested. Uh, testing things that do need to be tested, uh, getting a lot of bi- bike time in, just smashing out the runs just for volume, which is work capacity, like we talked about. Um, and then some riders, some teams will very quickly get the stopwatch out, get the, the free laps out, get the timing equipment out and work on that, you know, executing under the pressure of the clock or seeing what you can learn under the pressure of the clock, seeing what the clock t- teaches you in terms of your approach to a different section, a sector or full run, your pacing strategies, your cornering, Entries, breaking, setups, you know, literally all the pieces of the puzzle, but especially the big foundational pieces of the puzzle, which is a, a base bike setup that you're really happy with, uh, your ability to smash the, the, the demanding or the high intensity sections like big rock gardens, real steep sections, corners back to back, your ability to deal with the transitions between easy and, and intense terrain, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, all of those sorts of things. I think riders are just going to be out there looking for a variety of tracks, really demanding tracks, tracks that require a lot of finesse or a lot of uh, smooth and smart riding and just getting big volume under the belt. Yeah. And it's obviously a budget thing associated with this, right? Not every team has the budget to do a team camp every month, like the Commensal team <laughs> seems to be doing. Like, it, is, is there a benefit from doing so many team camps or is it just kind of, is it going to be messing with the heads of riders that maybe have one team camp or no team camp? Yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Like obviously you mentioned Commensal, the Commensal Mukov team and some of the other Commensal teams as well are all primarily European based. So mm. they're based on the continent of Europe, um, potentially in the same country or countries that border each other, as are the staff, as are the mechanics, as are the vans and the trucks, as is the service course where all the equipment and the bikes are stored. So for them, yes, it's a big outlay financially, no matter what. You get 10 people in the same place for five days, it's going to be a couple of thousand euro minimum. Yeah. Um, but for them, it's it's less of a burden. It's less of a toll on the athlete's training time because they, they only have to drive a few hours to get somewhere good to ride. They can mix in physical training with the riding training before and after or during. 
whereas riders or teams that have riders from all over the world or a team in the UK that has to drive to Southern Europe or to Spain to test or to Portugal and bring out all of the equipment to bring it back. You're looking at two days each, your side of travel. You're looking at a setup day where you have to buy food and get the bike set up. So yeah, logistically, um, potentially logistically more than financially, there's more mm-hmm. constraints for certain teams. So that's why you'll see a big difference in how teams approach things. Especially if you've yeah. got a, a team of two or three riders from North America or the Southern Hemisphere and you have to bring everyone to Europe or vice versa. So I think that's when you have to get creative as a team manager and you know get a couple of team camps done where you get everyone together so the staff and the riders are working together and you're problem solving together every day and every evening like you will at the race. But outside of that, you know, help the riders with budget or with planning to organize their own kind of mini riding camps um, uh-huh. on their own home trails or wherever it's close to home, you know. Yeah, which I guess you see uh, the Canyon team's an example of that with Troy out in the, mm. in Australia and Luca over in the US and Mark up in Canada. It's hard to get everyone together. Yeah, so those boys will probably do two or three times uh, between now and, and Fort William, let's say. They'll get everyone together, but otherwise they'll do their own kind of micro camps closer to home, which which is totally valid. I think it's totally valid. I think you can solve it with, with situations like, you know, with Canyon, with riders in, in faraway places, trying to get everything dialed and developed coming into 2020, let's say for the COVID season was a far bigger challenge for them versus say uh-huh. like the French based teams who had the French nationals to raise at, who had restrictions lifted earlier than other countries. So you've got those strange, just interesting logistical kind of situational factors that really go into how planning and organization impacts uh, impacts race results. And that's why maybe big motorsports like WRC and Formula One and MotoGP now mandate testing times because both logistically and financially, there's some big advantages to be had. So yeah, I don't know if we'll, sure. I don't know if we'll ever get there. I checked out the WRC rule book because WRC is way closer to uh, mountain bike demands in terms of the the terrain they race on is public roads mm-hmm. like our tracks or let's say public tracks yeah especially for ews so i checked the rule book recently to see how they control and regulate for um competition uh, testing mm-hmm. near competition and out of competition it was really interesting how they did it it was just super vague okay. it was so vague I- that like the the law could be slapped on top of you in like two minutes and you could get a massive fine for the most vague thing ever. So, <laughs> But also I guess it's pretty hard to go and thrash a world rally car around a public road without getting spotted and getting in trouble for it. Whereas yeah, they have to get the, to the local police. Track. Yeah. They have to get the local police to close the roads. So yeah. Yeah. Which is doable, right? In certain countries, that's not that yeah, hard. They, they do it all the time. Yeah. They do yeah. it all the time. Bring, brings money to local economies, like micro, micro economies, you know? So yeah, why not? Which which mountain biking does too. I think World Cup downhill especially is at the point now where um, there's a Portuguese cup in a place called Taruca um, mm-hmm. in end of February. And as far as I can see with the riders I coach and the teams I work with, um, there is going to be, it's a mini World Cup. And there's a, there's yeah. a race the weekend after at the Pierron bike park in Brioude in France, which is also a mini World Cup. So both of those small like, local economies are just going to be like, you know, turnover in the local economy is going to grow by about a hundred thousand euro in the space of a week. You know, it's all right for them. Happy days. Yeah, yeah, Good can't stuff. complain. Yeah. There you go. Well, yeah. So riders are ramping up the pace. They're getting a, you know more time against the clock, and as they do that, I guess the risk of injury also increases. Small mistakes can uh, can hurt. How do riders approach that this time of year? Because no one wants to be injured before the season kicks off. 
Yeah, I, I suppose I can't answer that specifically. Obviously, every individual rider is going to be different. Every team's different. Uh, getting injured at a training camp can happen. Like it's it's just the risk is ever present in downhill. Even even going slow, like people get injured doing silly things, stopping and not clipping out and falling over and breaking a wrist. You know, yeah. like crazy silly things can happen, as well as huge high speed devastating crashes can happen in training. Um, I think for, for me, from a coaching perspective, it's it's a really interesting question as to how you can mitigate that. You can't stop it. Risk is always mm. there. You have to, like every time you sit in a downhill bike, you have to accept the fact that it can go hugely wrong and you probably get away with it, but you might also not get away with it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, from a coaching perspective, mitigating the risk while getting a maximum quality and a maximum transfer from your training is a really, really interesting question. It's like, it's it's a genuinely super interesting question. Like how do we, how do we mix uh, you know, riding for volume to build your specific work capacity versus riding under, you know, while being timed to work on your intensity or what you can learn under the clock. Um, how many timed runs do you do? How hard do you push? Um, do certain riders that have, you know, technical weaknesses in certain types of terrain, do they push harder in those technical sections under under the clock to develop that or is that too risky or how much of that is acceptable risk and all of those sorts of things and it's the kind of thing the riders sometimes don't want to think about those sorts of things in that level of detail yeah because it's partially it's just too much detail to worry about when actually all you probably need to do is just go shred your bike and partially it just hits too close to home you're like oh fuck if i think about i can only do three three runs through this section at that pace because it, it's going to get dangerous because I'm not very good at that. Like that's, that's a hard thing for the ego to take. So there's yeah. so many coaching factors. And I think that's now why you'll see at the top level of world cup downhill, why top teams, top riders have a staff. They've got, you know, a dedicated mechanic. They may, they may have a, a suspension technician or team. They'll have a coach. They'll have uh, other members of staff, whether it's social media people or, family or whatever who'll also be trackside to help with videoing and analysis and just generally chit-chatting through problems so you, you, you'll start to see the growth of a staff network around teams and riders and i think that's that's a lot of the reason it's like solving challenges and problems like how much risk do we take at this team camp how gnarly do we make the track how many timed runs do we do do we do you know a big sprint before we do a timed run to develop a little bit of fatigue do we race each other? Do we put a wager or a bet on the racing? Do we have a handicap system where slower riders or the female riders, if they get within this many percentages of the winners, you know, there's, there's so many things you can do, so many interesting things teams and riders probably are doing already. So yeah, it's it's cool. It's, it's cool to see the sport progressing and developing like that. And I think if you if you speak to people who are involved in, in older sports, especially like alpine skiing, which is similar demands to us, motocross, MotoGP, any of the motorsports, you'll you'll hear some snippets of training ideas, um, testing systems, analysis systems that are kind of pretty far advanced uh, beyond what we have. So it's yeah. it's cool to get it's cool to get inspired there and to see what we do well and what they do well. You know, cool. And you, I mean, you obviously spend a lot of time in and around the pits. You have good contacts into quite a few of the of the teams through the riders that you coach. What mm-hmm. would you say that kind of state of the art looks like in in world cup downhill racing in 2021 like as far as i don't know process preparation equipment support you've touched on a few of those things already where do you kind of see that being and are there certain areas that you think will step up in 2022 
It's a really good question in terms of what's going to step up. Um, it looked like at a point where, where data acquisition was going to be like the, the the new the new ground of warfare, the new ground zero. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was going to have a data bike. Um, I'd argue that maybe everyone sh- everyone on a top team should have a data bike. Every rider maybe should have a data bike, but the amount of time that the mechanics and the riders need to invest into reading the data and actually making uh, impactful changes based off the data is 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 huge. Mm. Um, but that's definitely an area that's going to develop. Um, high pivot bicycles are a trend at the moment, and I think there's a, there's a couple of other teams and other manufacturers who are going to bring high pivot prototypes to the World Cups this year. It looks like. Uh-huh. Whether it's the right decision, I'm, I'm not sure. It's it's the thing of it's it's fashion. It's it's following the trend. And whether it's actually the right decision, I'm not sure. But those sorts of bikes definitely do have some big advantages. And um, but as you'll see with the likes of Comencal, they've developed the that prototype V5 to be a more well-rounded bike than the previous, yeah. which was a very demanding bike to ride fast. Um. So yeah, th- those sorts of trends are going in you know data acquisition, high pivots, um, and the mullet setup i think is pretty much here to stay with the exception of a super tall rider like greg menard or benoit coulange i think almost everyone is going to be on a mullet and that's going to be par for the course i think both disciplines enduro downhill will all be on mullets as the only option in a couple of years personally but i could be i could be wrong but that's that's definitely the, the where it's it's looking like in terms of equipment um personally i think that tire development is a big underdeveloped area Looking, looking at how other sports, how much effort they put into tires in terms of construction, in terms of you know changing tread patterns, in terms of the development across the board. There, I think the tire and wheel system for me is something that's very undeveloped. You know, we've got tire and wheel manufacturers that don't necessarily communicate ever. So that's probably an area that's super underdeveloped. Um, but in terms of actual, what's going to be impactful on performance in the twenty twenty two season? It's it's the people that's going to be a big one. Like I said uh-huh. to you, like the, the teams around the riders and the riders can feel this. They can see this. Um, you need people you trust around you. You need people that have good insight into the sport around you. You need people that can help you, help the riders filter out the the mind games and the bullshit from the actual useful information. Um, you need people that have experience working with you, that know how the riders work, you know, to push you at the right times, to hold you back at the right times. So a coaching structure, uh, an overall team environment, mechanics, outside sponsors or outside people that can come in and be on the same page as the rest of the team. So there's a a coherency um, and a continuity in the feedback and uh, the support structure around riders. That sort of thing is going to be really, really important. Really, really important. And that's kind of an area that some teams will get right and really reap the benefits. And other teams probably don't get as, as right and definitely... The benefits just well, yeah aren't there. It almost has a negative impact when when a rider kind of has a developing support structure and people in the support structure don't have a coherence in terms of what they're trying to deliver for the rider. Yeah, true. And I guess at, at different events throughout the year, you'll have different people from brands turning up that you know support the team, potentially put a lot of money into the team and want to be involved, but maybe haven't been up to that point or yeah. haven't been able to attend team camps. Kind of hard to manage, I guess, because politically you can't tell your sponsors to go away but equally if riders don't know them well and suddenly they're in the mix at a race that might be quite challenging yeah totally like whoever holds the checkbook kind of holds 
holds a bit of leeway, but that's that's not how it's how it should be in terms of well, like you said, some riders are totally able to manage all those variables, some aren't, some shouldn't have to, regardless of even if they are able to manage it. So um yeah, that those sorts of things are where team management at the end of the higher echelons of team management need to be quite vocal in terms of this is how things work, this is why things work like this, this is how the rider likes to do this, if you want but I see it, you know, working with Tani, especially who's who's under big media demands and um, Reese Wilson recently as well. You know, I did a lot yeah. of uh, Red Bull Helmet Cam previews and stuff for, for Red Bull TV. And you can see when riders are under big media demand like that uh, and big sponsor demand like that, like Tani has had to progressively just um, delegate and dictate her schedule at World Cup weeks just to make sure she has enough time to actually do her job to her full potential, you know. Uh-huh. To just say, look, I've got an hour here where I can do an interview. If you can't do that hour, it's just not happening, you know. Yeah. So that's that sort of thing where there's a coherence in the support structure and the systems around the riders is, is going to be super, super important. Super important. And yeah. that, I think that's just a testament to the professionalism, the growth of the sport, you know. And that I guess, yeah, those media demands are only growing, right? The amount of content that comes out of a World Cup weekend is huge now compared yeah. to even what it was five years ago and that all every single element of that relies on some rider's time right yeah totally that's that's actually i, I wrote a piece for the latest hurley burley book and uh-huh. that exact that exact thing is that's what inspired it was the fact that actually you see so much social media content youtube videos red bull tv live feed the pre-show and um, the riders personal social media feeds brand behind the scenes all that sort of stuff you see so much of it but it's all curated it's all either there to give you an impression or it gives you an impression without you realizing it or without the rider even realizing it so that's why i tried to write the piece to actually let people know actually what happens at a world cup and just how kind of constrained the riders and the staff are by the schedule like once that once your once track walk starts you're kind of you're on the uci schedule until the end of podiums the podium ceremony or until you actually take the pits down basically and uh it's yeah it's it's quite it's when you do three or four events back to back you kind of like get into this little groundhog day scenario of like well it's it's friday and this is what happens on friday <laughs> and it's it's yeah it's really interesting to kind of to maximize uh your impact as a coach to maximize your time as a rider to minimize your negative impacts as a as a sponsor looking for um you know uh, social media content or whatever else um throughout that super tight condensed schedule is is a big part of the performance kind of puzzle at the moment yeah yeah you uh you mentioned earlier you were occasionally tempted to get back on track at world cups uh until you saw the ice at lords um <laughs> I've, I've heard of a team having their coaches a registered rider so that they can be in group b practice and uh, mm. and in qualies for i guess giving more detailed feedback to the team do you, do you see that as an area for like marginal gains or um it's potentially not marginal uh, it's it already happens it has okay. happened the last two years um without people knowing it um because said riders have tried to qualify by and large so they haven't pulled uh-huh. the plug before qualifying they've actually tried to qualify so it looks it looks totally normal um but actually underneath it if you dig it a little bit deeper it really is to help the the faster riders and the team how much help it is or isn't it's it's totally it's different it's it's challenging i think from my experience 90 percent of the time you'd be more beneficial as a coach or as a, a rider slash coach outside the tape than inside the tape you'll see more mm-hmm. you'll see more because, because especially if you're in group b like the, the the juniors and the female riders have 
such a difficult time at World Cups um, just because of how challenging Group B practice can be, just in terms of conditions, in terms of light, in terms of turnaround times, in terms of the gap between Group B practice and time training, all of those logistical factors um, and scheduling factors. So if it does happen, if some teams kind of just explicitly say, look, we have Coach X, who's a former pro, and they're on track for Group B, and the rules don't disallow it, and... The, the riders registered on a UCI team I think it'll stop pretty quick I think there'll be a lot of complaints pretty fast personally <laughs> <laughs> I know how things work behind the scenes and there'll be a lot of complaining um, because just because not everyone has not everyone has the opportunity to, to do that and yeah it's and like I said I don't know how beneficial it'll be I really don't mm. but I guess it's a lot of interesting question a lot of teams yeah a lot of teams don't have the ability to have three, four, five people trackside videoing and doing that stuff. So where where do you draw the line? That's the tricky thing, right? Yeah, where do you, where do you draw the line on, on that side of things? And um, with with a, a coach slash rider who's going to do the first two practice sessions and not qualify, for example, if that's kind of what you're talking about. If they get a puncture on the first run or break a wheel and then the lift queue is long or the lift is slow, like we have a lot of venues, or the lift breaks down for a minute. Like, you know, I've worked with riders in Group B that have a mechanical issue, they're privateers, and they basically get three runs in the morning. So if, if you're a coach and you try and do this this ride instead of coach thing to get some you know better on track insider rider the riders, it's definitely got some potential benefits, but also it's got some big risks like you know breaking the bike and basically missing the entire session because yeah. you haven't had you know turnaround times are slow or whatever. So yeah. Uh, really, really interesting. But like you said, resources, I don't know if we're gonna get regulations on resources eventually. I've, I'm not, I'm, you know, there was, there has been no proper team managers meetings at World Cups in quite a while because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So they've all been virtual, and by and large, I don't know. I think UCI have just sent out the communicate and left it at that type of thing. Um, but communication between teams and riders in the UCI has been has been pretty good the last few years. You know, there's WhatsApp groups, there's there's uh, kind of a trackside get together if needed, that sort of thing. So it's been it's been okay. And I think if if resource wars get real bad like really bad where there's some stark differences or for example the specialized gravity team do a bit of timing with some light cell timing you know trackside yeah and um they, they use it how they use it how impactful it is i'm not so sure um certain times it can be really useful certain times maybe not uh, it's quite labor intensive because you need to write down who the rider was and their time you know the timing yeah. system they use it doesn't store the times and names together uh-huh. but for example if five of the top teams started timing the entire track then i think we'd be in a scenario where actually the uci would have to say no okay you have to stop the trackside timing because having this much equipment trackside is actually a hazard yeah and it's potentially unfair so now we're going to give you live timing throughout all of practice and we're going to chop up the track into this many sections like formerly one and you buy it off us or we give it to you it's part of mm-hmm. the deal so that's kind of probably where we're going in the future i think yeah it's probably where we're going to in the future like f1 has gone through a motor gp has gone through these transitions you know I, I know that f1 teams used to use like video video the live timing screen and it'd be a live like they'd take the data off the live time screen and have it updated on their own computers based off mm-hmm their video camera staring at the the TV screen, you know, whereas now the FIA give the, give all the sector info to the teams directly. Uh So sports as they grow, go through transitions. And I think we're definitely going to go through a, a resource war (laughs) transition. Um, what it'll end up being at the end, I don't know. And I think like 
I saw it recently, I think it was Loic Bruni in the latest Fast Life said it, and I saw one of the Alpine skiers I follow, she said it. And actually, like at the end of the day, all the pressure is on the athlete to execute come race runs. Yeah. So there's there's only so much the the team and the support staff can do. So that sometimes puts a, if you compare that to the WRC, where the, the gravel crew between the stages can have a big impact on the stage performance or Formula One, where you have a, a race engineer in your ear every lap basically telling you what to do to a point yeah, yeah. you know we, we we don't have that that level of impact from outside um staff members when it comes to race runs you're just that's the athletes on their own and that's why people love downhill so much because it's just that mm-hmm. exciting because the athlete rolls into the start gate and there's nothing left only them and the track yeah true so but that's I guess a big you know a big part of their mindset when they're in the gate and on track for that run has come from everything that's built yeah up to totally it, right so totally totally whether, yeah. the, whether the track side support was useful as far as them finding seconds if it finds mm. them a good headspace because they believe in it yeah well, totally yeah that's enough yeah well massively like and, and that's uh, building confidence like confidence is the currency of success for for a sport like downhill so building confidence is what the support network is all about i think what i mean is that the resource wars will probably have a, a natural cap on itself because uh-huh. the, Im- the impact it can have is defined by the confidence you give the athlete because them executing the race run is what matters. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah, yeah, okay. the, the Im- impact of resource wars in a sport like Formula One means that Friday night, the engineers take two helicopters, fly back to the factory and make three new parts that night. You know that better than me. Yeah. Whereas, you know, that's that's not just, it's happened in downhill, but it's probably not necessary to win a race ever. So the kind of, yeah, the resource wars may have like a natural cap in downhill that the UCI won't have to get involved in mandating, you know, or maybe not. Yeah, maybe that- it's just going to go, <laughs> it's going to go crazy. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be uh, be interesting to see helicopters on standby, not for uh, accidents, but for getting parts from base back out to the track. So. The carbon footprint, it won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll just have drone drone flights, just solar powered drones. There you go, happy days. It's cool. It's it's a nice it's a nice time to be involved in World Cup downhill though, because everyone can kind of see and feel from the outside that it is growing fast. Mm. So it is yeah, a really nice I time, so. and I think the only thing that I I'd like to see now is that the tracks. The tracks follow suit. Okay. The tracks follow suit. That there's a far more coherent strategy from the UCI and the teams in terms of reducing the financial and the environmental impact on the scheduling. Um, going out currently, you know, the, the, the venues that want to host races go to the UCI. I think the UCI should go to the venues and ask. Should we do the other way around? Uh-huh. And we yeah. should have, you know, a season where you have four races at these tracks and then we have a year off. So we biannual biannual events and you know you really okay. big up the venues big up the tracks like alpine skiing has the hanningham everyone knows the hanningham or vengen go they yeah. go there every every year and the track is more important than the race basically yeah yeah, you yeah. Know, that's how mythic those tracks are and downhill definitely has that val Soli, fort william uh, andorra i think the andorra tracks change now for this year um montsenan and i think we you know the sport can really capitalize on that and on the flip side of the coin new tracks um super well prepared tracks with really demanding sections that are kept closed to the public or completely looked after to to keep their core kind of mythic feeling to them you know what i mean alpine skiing yeah. has it has it super lucky to a point because snow is new every year so give or take it might get a, a nice fresh track every year because the snow falls yeah um or you make it spend the fortune making it um, <laughs> so i think yeah just that side of things is, is something that downhill world cup really needs to preempt or get proactive on between yeah. the teams and the uci is 
the scheduling, the tracks, that sort of thing. We could see some new venues for sure, new tracks, yeah. new challenges. Absolutely. And I think we're at, we're at the point now where, you know, if you had like a, uh, if you had a pay-per-view live feed type thing, uh, people would all, I don't know if they'd pay, but they'd definitely like to see official testing, official World Cup testing, where the top 10 teams like other sports get together to test at certain yeah. venues. You know, so that that's that that kind of thing is is uh, yeah, it's, it's something that could happen, and I think it's just a super interesting time to be involved in the sport. And there's really nice things happening, really good things happening at the team level, and then at you know higher up, a more organizational levels, there's a bit of bit of slack, you know. Yeah, things to be improved for sure, mm-hmm. and um, fingers crossed that COVID will have less of an impact in general on the season this year. Like things generally seem to be fairly positive. Um, despite, you know, rising rates and all that kind of stuff. But mm. one thing we probably should touch on is that I think this is still the case is that for athletes and staff attending uh, events in France this year, full vaccination is mandatory. Um, um, it's going to be really hard to know. Um, I live in France for anyone who doesn't, doesn't know. So I've got a good grasp on what's happening in terms of the legislation in France. Um, it's kind of vague at the moment, deliberately. Um, so they've got a vaccine pass now. So it used to be a health pass. We had to, you could get a, co- a PCR test and that would allow you access to cinemas, to restaurants, to theatres, to sporting venues, that sort of thing. Um, it's definitely an economic type thing that you have the vaccine pass now where everyone um, who wants to attend a, a soccer match or a rugby match in a big stadium has to have a vaccine pass. You can no longer just get a PCR test. Um, whether that's going to have a, an impact on an outdoor event like Lourdes, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Like the Lourdes World Cup is a closed event, so they put up barriers all around a certain portion of the town. You pay to get in. So I think if it's a pay a paid entry event and there's going to be so many spectators, even if it's outdoor, we probably will need to be vaccinated. Uh, if there's so many staff and so many riders, up to you know a thousand people total, maybe we'll all have to be vaccinated. I think it's it's a little bit grey at the moment. And the only thing the government has said is that if case numbers lower or whatever metrics they use that are probably useless metrics anyway, um, that the vaccine pass might just disappear altogether. It's not for life uh-huh. type thing. So yeah, uh, hard to know. Maybe as, maybe if they just as long as uh, they get to use a fifth dose of vaccine and, and Pfizer and AstraZeneca get their money, they'll all be happy. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> I don't do conspiracy theories. Um, Hard, yeah, really, really tough to know. Uh, I know there is some unvaccinated, like non-COVID vaccinated uh, World Cup downhitters. So yeah. if things stay as they are now, it looks like they, they won't be racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, it's all up in the air from what I can see. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah and if you are going to either have to have another booster at some point or if you're going to have to get the vaccine because you, you decide that, okay, I didn't want to, but I want to race more than I don't want to have the vaccine, so I'm going to go mm-hmm. do it timing that can be a bit tricky as well right i don't know how you've been with your vaccines but i've certainly felt it and have struggled to train at any level of intensity for a decent chunk of time after them they've like the level of fatigue that i've felt whenever i've tried to do anything has been pretty high yeah the immune response is uh, pretty high i like it's it's complex obviously it's based on previous vaccination previous infection and also you're just your innate immune response 
plus environmental factors, biopsychosocial factors. So it's super complex. Like some people mm. have it, get a sore arm because you get the local inflammatory response in your arm, which is totally normal for any injection almost. Um, and then after that, you have systemic responses normally based around fatigue, fatigue and fever, um, yeah. maybe a little bit of general malaise. Um, some people do get it. Some people don't. Riders I coach who, who've been vaccinated, second and third doses have felt terrible. Uh, personally, yeah. I've, I've felt shocking on second and third dose, re- real bad fever. fever. No, fever symptoms, but not actually a fever. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, ups and downs of heart rate and, and feeling like I had the sweats, even though my temperature was fine. Yeah. So, yeah, I think timing, the, the issue is here, timing it um, to deal with the local laws, because some countries are going to say, oh, yeah, but your, your, your booster is too late now. It's, it's too old. Yeah, yeah. But in your in your country of origin, it's absolutely fine. And it was fine to travel with and enter the country, but it's not fine to enter the event. Like that sort of stuff is just ludicrous, really. Like yeah. if, your, if your vaccination scheme that you're on is adequate to travel internationally and enter a country, but not adequate to enter an event, we're in the realms of just ludicrousness, really. Like uh, sure. bureaucracy, bureaucracy trumping any sort of intelligent health policy. But look, that's that's what... That's what dealing with something as complex as a pandemic is all about. It seems to be on the surface. Um, so yeah, I think when you strip it back a little bit and you go, okay, look, first World Cups in Lourdes, vax, France has a vaccine pass. Actually, all the riders that are going to want to race Lourdes and win the World Cup series are probably going to nowadays need to be vaccinated to travel internationally. So if they uh-huh. want to go to Montsinan and um, Snowshoe, or anywhere else, maybe you don't want to go to Southern Hemisphere for crankworks or go to South Africa for training, they're going to need to be vaccinated anyway. Okay. So, and vice versa, the North American athletes that want to come to Europe, even if they don't need a vaccine pass to race lower, they will need a vaccine pass to get into France. They will need to be vaccinated to travel in the first place. So there's, yeah. I'm glad I'm not a team manager. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty, I guess what you're saying is it's pretty small numbers that might not be able to get so. on the start line. Yeah, seems seems that way. Seems that way. It's 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 a strange one. Um, yeah, it, but it, it does away with these bubbles that are impossible to keep. That's the that's the yeah, whole yeah. point. I think it's like you know using PCR tests to create bubbles to to reduce the risk of transmission uh, is just unworkable, like completely unworkable. When you have public, when you've got public hotels, when you've got public transport, when you've got it's just a nightmare. Like so. Yeah, I think so that's that- that's the root co- that's the root goal of the vaccine pass in France. Whether it's Effective is a different question. Do you know? Do you know what the score is with uh, the World Cup events this year, as far as bubbles and testing in and out and stuff goes, or is that yet to be confirmed? Uh, the UCI have released their COVID protocols for road cycling events, the World Tour road cycling events. I saw that recently, uh, which is very similar to their 2021 protocols, which they say were super effective. Um, I skimmed it; I didn't even digest it because I'm not sure if it's going to have an impact on mountain bike events. So I'll just wait to right. see the. The rules, yeah. Wait, just wait and see rules and regulations. Yeah, we'll see. Fair enough. Good stuff. But, uh, no matter got, what, yeah. I think no matter what, um, local rules, like like with body armor, the body armor rules, the local laws trump any UCI regulation. So okay. when it comes to COVID regulations, local laws will trump UCI laws. So yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed it doesn't impact things too much. We have spectators trackside all season. Good atmosphere, good vibes, and everyone's able to race. That's the key thing. Yeah, right? fingers crossed. Especially Lord. Lord's going to be amazing. Like absolutely amazing because the, the fans are just. They're just crazy, you know, and it's, there's a couple of big kind of dense population areas within say three or four hours of Lourdes. Uh-huh. So I think everyone just piles in if they can and 
goes crazy on holy water and mountain biking you know <laughs> <laughs> good stuff can't wait yeah not long to go now until we get things underway but yeah, yeah thanks chris it's been uh it's been really interesting catching up we'll no doubt chat again closer to the first race happening with a little little pre-race chit chat and uh catch you at some races throughout the year hopefully yeah awesome and if anyone has any questions on preparing for ewss's and trying to simplify it you kind of you got me on the spot with a few of the questions which is good <laughs> uh, but if, yeah, if anyone has any questions they can hit me up or you or we can do a, a a word document show notes if anyone needs it or whatever yeah yeah or follow up or whatever yeah if people yeah, yeah so your what's your instagram for people it's at point one athletic so one as a one a numerical yep. one uh, oh, it'd yeah. be cool um <laughs> so they can they can message me there and yeah like i said if, if people genuinely have some more in-depth or they want a bit further insight on some of those concepts for prepping for ews and want some real specific methods or training ideas then we could definitely do a quick follow-up yeah with like 10 specific, yeah. specific questions or whatever yeah perfect yeah if people want awesome. want to uh to hear some stuff then send us some specific questions and we'll, we'll dive into it at some point yeah awesome nice one cool cheers chris have a good few weeks and uh yeah catch you before lords yeah, see you soon. All right, that's it for this episode with Chris. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you to Magura for supporting this episode. Don't forget, you can win a full MT7 Pro customize your brake bundle from Magura. All you need to do is to head over to at Downtime Podcast on Instagram and find the post from Monday the 24th of January that shows all the brake options, where you'll also find all the information you need to enter. Super simple, and there's going to be one lucky winner chosen at random on the 1st of March, so you've got until the end of February to enter. To check out the entire range of Magira's brakes and customization options with some really great guides to help you find the best setup, head over to magura.com. Also, thank you to Kushkor. If you want a setup that's been proven by pro downhill and EWS racers that's going to help you go bigger, corner harder, and ride faster with total confidence, then they've got what you need. Cushcore really isn't just an insert to help you reduce the chance of punctures and rim damage. It really does improve the way your bike rides. Head over to cushcore.com now and check out the products for your bike and your riding. If you like print and you want a quality mountain bike print product in your life, then the brand new biannual downtime EP is the one for you. It's a collab with the incredible team over at Misspent Summers. Head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP now to grab a copy of issue one. Also, my full range of merch is ready to go over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. T-shirts, sweatshirts, shorts and joggers are all available and all the proceeds go to help improving the podcast. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you're still listening and you've got a bit of time, please tell your rider mates about the podcast because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. You can share the episodes on your social media. It's also a great way to generate a bit of buzz around things. And if you've got time, a review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way too. All right, there's going to be another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>